Well, it is uh, good to uh, uh, worship with you this morning and to see everyone. I'd actually like uh, for you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you can, to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And while you're getting there, just to tell you a, a quick story. So a little over 25 years ago, I was shopping for an engagement ring for my soon-to-be wife. And uh, yeah, that's right, 25 years. And uh, I told the jeweler what I was looking for, and you know, he went over the typical uh, spiel of how to evaluate you know, diamonds, cut clarity, etc. cetera. Uh, but at some point in our conversation, he placed a, a piece of black velvet cloth uh, and on the counter, and he, and he set a few uh, diamonds on there for me to look at. And suddenly I was, you know, staring in amazement at these beautiful, sparkling uh, jewels that were brilliantly reflecting the light from above. And I finally narrowed it down to a final stone and, and I made my purchase. But one of the things that uh, remained etched in my mind, into my memory, uh, was that besides the fact that, you know, you need light to see diamonds, and of course they had very good lighting there, I was able to appreciate the beauty of the diamond more against the backdrop of the dark velvet cloth. And, and, and we see that principle of contrast in many areas of, of life, especially in, in Scripture. We, we can appreciate beautiful things uh, more sometimes when considered against the backdrop of their opposites. Uh, we understand light in relationship to darkness. Uh, we, you know, we can delight in the good news uh, more deeply when we're keenly aware of the bad news. And, uh, and so for some time now, I've been immersing myself in the life of David. Um, and uh, while uh, uh, his defeat of Goliath is probably the most well-known scene in his life, uh, what we're about to read uh, today is, I think, one of the most beautiful. It is a scene that uh, demonstrates the extraordinary kindness of David, uh, indeed what he called the kindness of God. And this kindness that he uh, displayed uh, was based on a prior covenant promise that he had made. And as we'll see, the, the kindness of David uh, in keeping with uh, his promise is a picture of God's extraordinary kindness to sinners. Uh, the title of my message this morning is At the King's Table of Mercy. So let's uh, give our attention now to uh, God's Word in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I'd ask the congregation to please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 13. And it says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. 
And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. And fell on his face. And paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Father, we just thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you show kindness, Lord. Lord, you are, you are faithful to your covenant, and you show loyal love and mercy to sinners, Lord for the sake of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that, Lord, it would just pierce our hearts and do what only your word can do. Would you open our ears and open our hearts? In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Did not think that was going to happen, but that is sometimes what God's Word does. This uh, is, you know, I think one of the loveliest scenes in the life of David. Uh, but really to truly appreciate its beauty, we need to understand the not-so-lovely background. And David was ruling over a united Israel from Jerusalem, and God had given him victory after victory after military victory. And his enemies who had previously opposed him, including Saul, and those from his camp were no more. But just about 15 or 20 years earlier, the picture was quite different. After David had killed Goliath and helped Israel win many other military victories, Saul had become suspicious and jealous of David. And one day he heard uh, the women of Israel, no fault of their own, they were singing a song. And he was offended by those lyrics. And they went like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, it was probably true. I'm sure it was. And if it's true, if you've got an incredible warrior, there's no need, no need to be jealous. I mean, you know, praise God that more military victories. But Saul's jealousy burned so hot that he spent the rest of his years relentlessly pursuing David uh, and, and, and trying different ways to kill him. And David was forced to live as a, a fugitive, hunted by Israel's erratic and unstable king who had now become his enemy. And, and Saul knew that God had rejected him from being king because the uh, the prophet Samuel had, had told him. Uh, he had told him because he had uh, disobeyed God's word and rejected God's word. And in, instead of humbly stepping aside for God's chosen king, his pride and fear drove him to harden his grip on power and made David's life a nightmare. David's conduct, on the other hand, uh, was quite a different story. Uh, although he had known from his teenage years that God had anointed him to be king, uh, he refused to take matters into his own hands and, and force his way onto the throne. And even though Saul made David his enemy, uh, David respected Saul as God's anointed king of Israel, and he left the timing of any future transition in the capable care of God's sovereignty. But that day eventually came. And the Bible tells us uh, after, after Saul and his son Jonathan died in a battle against the Philistines, David mourned both of their deaths, especially Jonathan's whom he loved. Uh, and then David's own tribe, Judah, anointed him as their king. And he was around 22 to 23 years old around that time. But initially, the northern kingdom was uh, divided. And well, they had actually formed a rival regime uh, of those who were loyal to Saul, 
And it would be another seven and a half years when David turned 30 that the northern tribes would recognize his rule and anoint him king over all Israel. And when he fully ascended the throne of Israel, what did David do? Well, as king, David acted with justice, equity, and kindness. Did he seek revenge against those who had previously opposed him? No. Did he make sure to get rid of uh, any survivors of the previous dynasty or any other potential rivals? Not at all. In fact, chapter 8 tells us that David administered justice and equity to all his people. But you see, David went beyond just administering justice and equity, as good as those things are and reflect the character of God. He acted with extraordinary kindness toward a descendant of his previous enemy. And not only did he extend this kindness to one who had every reason to fear for his life, he supplied him with steady provisions and gave him a permanent place of fellowship with him at the king's table. This is extraordinary. And the Bible teaches that salvation results in a transformed life. Psalm 1-3 says that the man who delights in God's word will grow like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And this transforming grace touches every aspect of our lives, including personal relationships. And we see the fruit of God's grace in David's life. We see it in the extraordinary kindness that he displayed to this member of Saul's family for the sake of Jonathan. And yet as beautiful as David's conduct was, commendable and worthy of emulation, he's more than just an example for our faith. Absolutely, we should be kind and extend kindness to others. But the reason why he's more than just an example for our faith is that David foreshadows something far more profound and precious. David, as the Lord's anointed, prefigures the saving ministry of Christ. And his showing kindness to the family of his arch enemy foreshadowed God's dealing in grace with us sinners. And David, showing his loyal love for Jonathan's sake, points us to how God is faithful to his covenant and shows loyal love and mercy to sinners for the sake of Christ. So what exactly is this kindness? In verse 1, David first asked in his heart, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And the word kindness here is the translation of the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed carries a, a depth of meaning that, that's sometimes challenging to translate into English with a single word. And depending on the context, it can be translated as loving kindness 
mercy, steadfast love, loyalty, or faithfulness. Hesed describes a deep, abiding, covenantal love. It's often used to describe God's unwavering love, mercy, and faithfulness toward his people. For instance, many of the Psalms speak of God's hesed enduring forever. It also encompasses the idea of loyalty and faithfulness to commitments or covenants, whether between God and humans or between humans themselves. It's a love that goes beyond obligation, a love that acts in generous and merciful ways, even when it's not required or expected. It is loyal love. An example of loyal love is Ruth and Naomi. And after the death of their husbands, Naomi urged her Moabite daughters-in-law to return to their own people. But Ruth clung to Naomi and said, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Well, this is a profound expression of hesed, Ruth's loyal love and commitment to Naomi. How beautiful is that word, hesed? David asked, is there still anyone of the house of Saul that I may show him hesed for Jonathan's sake? Why for Jonathan's sake? David's motivation to show hesed was the loyal love he had for Jonathan and the prior covenant they shared. Jonathan was one of Saul's sons. And David had a deep and genuine friendship with Jonathan, which was also based on hesed, loyal love. And after David had defeated Goliath and again helped Israel win uh, many battles, the Bible tells us that Jonathan's soul became knit to David's. In 1 Samuel 18, uh, 3 to 4, it says, then, then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. But Jonathan recognized God's favor upon David. And he even seemed to understand that David's future role in Israel. So when Jonathan gave David his, his robe, armor, sword, bow, it signified that he was transferring his status as heir of the kingdom to David. It was an act of loyalty and submission. It was also an act of faith. And yet, as Dale Ralph Davis wrote, no one in the Near East would do that. No one would do that. But Jesus said, you must hate father and mother for me. In other words, 
you must give up houses and kingdoms for me. And in this way, Jonathan is a picture of New Testament conversion. Jonathan gave up a kingdom to follow the true king. And when David told Jonathan that Saul was trying to kill him and the future seemed uncertain, they reaffirmed their covenant. And Jonathan said in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 to 17, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So as it had become, it had become clear that David had to flee and might never see Jonathan again, they both wept. But finally, Jonathan told David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, go in peace. Peace, right? Peace is a product of the covenant. Go in peace. Because we have both sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And now that day had come when the Lord had cut off David's enemies. And it didn't matter that Jonathan was no longer alive. That the covenant they cut was 15 or 20 years ago. Or more. We can't be exactly sure about all the timing. But David remembered his love for Jonathan and the covenant they shared. As one author put it, here is the power covenant exercises the promise made in the past directs fidelity in the present that's powerful that is the power that covenant exercises verse 2 and 3 continue now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, 
Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Now, interestingly, in these verses, in the section that David's speaking to Ziba, he's referred to as the king, the king. And the king said, and the king said, it's, 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 the relationship was formal. But when David speaks to Mephibosheth, it's David said, and David said. It was more personal. But one of the things we should notice in these verses, verses 2 and 3, is firstly, the king makes the first move. The king makes the first move. It wasn't Jonathan's son who sought the king. It was the king who sought him. And so it is with God toward us. God is the one who makes the first move. He is the one who initiates. We do not seek him, as Paul writes, quoting David in Romans 3.11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And as Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the nature of lost sheep is to keep wandering further and further away. It's the shepherd who must do the seeking. Lost sheep never go after the shepherd. It was God who sought Abraham in the land of Ur, Moses in Midian, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. God is the one who does the seeking. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Secondly, there was nothing in the son of Jonathan that could commend him to David. But Jonathan's son had nothing that he could offer to David in exchange for this mercy. He was poor and lame and had nothing with which to repay him. He was one of the family of David's enemies, Saul. In other words, he was an undeserving case. The gospel of grace is not seeking those who can pay God back. It doesn't offer salvation in exchange for service to be rendered afterward. On the contrary, it's for worthless wretches, for the spiritually bankrupt, for lost and undone sinners. The riches of the gospel are offered without money and without price. Revelation twenty-two seventeen says, let the one who desires... Take the water of life without price. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Now let's take a closer look at this Mephibosheth. He was first introduced to us in 2 Samuel 4, 4. 
in just one verse which says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. In other words, about their death. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. The name Mephibosheth means, get ready, a shameful thing. Or out of the mouth of shame. And he was defined by his disability. Every mention of him is always with reference to his disability and the reality of his lameness. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now maybe Ziba was trying to reassure David that Mephibosheth is not a threat to the kingdom. Don't worry, he's, he's crippled in his feet. But nevertheless, it points us to the condition of natural man. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so, like his name, a polluted garment is a shameful thing. And out of his mouth, the natural man has every reason to cry, unclean, unclean. And verse 4 continues, the king said to him, where is he? Notice, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amuel at Lodabar. I note the question, where is he? He was not in Jerusalem, he was in Lodabar. Now, it really truly is amazing how all the, all the details of Scripture have a purpose. The name Lodabar means no pasture. It can also mean no word or no thing, which is literally nothing. This is where Mephibosheth was living, in a place of barrenness, desolation, nothingness, no word, nothing, no spiritual food that he could feast on, no pasture. Imagine that from Lodabar to the king's palace, from Lodabar, from nothing to the king's palace. And verse 5. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Again, all the details of Scripture. For this one, I, 
I'm going to read you a quote because it was just too good, and I, I can't say it better. I love this quote. It's from A.W. Pink. He says this. There was this poor creature belonging to a family that was in rebellion against David, lame in both feet and dwelling in the place of no pasture. And here was the king upon his throne with purpose of heart to show him kindness for the sake of another. What then was the next move? Did David send a message of welcome, inviting him to come to Jerusalem? Did he notify Mephibosheth that if he did his part, mercy should be accorded to him? Did he forward the cripple a pair of crutches, bid him make use of them, and hobble to Jerusalem as best he could? No. Indeed, had anything like that been David's policy, our typical picture, meaning where this is a, a typology, our typical picture had failed completely to exhibit the kindness of God unto those on whom he bestows so great a salvation. God does much more than provide means of grace. It says in verse 5, David sent and brought him. You catch that? Thank you, Lord, for bringing grace. This is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings us into the presence of the king. And Mephibosheth in verse 6, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. I, I, I just can't imagine this meeting. Imagine this meeting. You're from the other dynasty. Um, the, the king and his son, which is your father, have both died. Um, and your grandfather was the arch enemy of the king. And you have been summoned to come and stand before the king. No, you've been brought. You've been brought. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Just imagine the the trembling, uh, the, the prostrate position, and the first thing, again, the king takes initiative and breaks the silence, and he just utters his name, Mephibosheth. John 10, 3, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant. That was, 
the response. And David said to him, do not fear. Do not fear. What, what beautiful words. What beautiful words, especially spoken after the soothing way in which his name was called. Do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Fear not. You can be at peace. Why? I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Mephibosheth had peace with the king. Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Well, not, not David's land. This was Saul when, when he lived in his home. And apparently Mephibosheth had lost that in the, in the, in the race out to flee as, and, and become essentially a fugitive as well. Uh, they had to let go of land. And David's like, I'm going to restore that to you. And you shall eat at my table always. This is, this is beyond just kindness. It is another level of kindness. That's why we need the word like hesed, which has all the layers of meaning. But what was the effect of divine grace applied? Did it, did it puff up Mephibosheth with self-importance? Did it make him want to act like somebody else that he wasn't? Not at all. It says in verse 8, And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. When divine grace is applied to the heart, this is the response. There's a humbling. There's a greater sense of our unworthiness. Interestingly, David uttered similar words back when he was being persecuted by Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, 14, David said, After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? Words of self-abasement. Divine grace applied leads to a greater sense of our own unworthiness. In verse 9, the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his household I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Not only was Mephibosheth uh, provided with life, his life was spared, 
peace with the king and inheritance restored, but ongoing provision, ongoing provision brought to him, worked for him, ongoing provision and a place at the king's table always. One thing is to be invited as a guest to the king's house, which is an incredible privilege to be able to have a setting in which you're eating food and you're sitting face by face, face to face in a more intimate setting. Another thing is to say, this is going to be your permanent, permanent position. And to have a permanent spot at the table is to be conferred the privilege of a son. The only other people who could see the king every day like that were the sons. What a beautiful, beautiful provision. We, we, we don't know the half of it. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's almost like marvel at the question and to be like, I am. The reason why the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Oh, and then Ziba said to the king, well, there were orders. He had no choice, right? According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at the at David's table, like one of the king's sons. You can come up, uh, music team. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Notice the interesting ending, though. Now, he was lame in both feet. So, you see, here is where the limitation, too, of our typology uh, is found. What David could not do, our Lord can do exceedingly and abundantly even more. David could not give him new feet. But in a way, it's another picture too. Uh, having a, a sort of lameness, having a, a reminder of your limitation, your limitations. And simultaneously, as almost like a picture of like, I really don't deserve this. I have nothing that I could offer. But here I am at the king's table, always kind of makes a more a more fitting end for this side of eternity. But in this story of Mephibosheth, we most certainly witness a profound display of grace, mercy, and hesed. That steadfast, loyal, covenant love. Don't be afraid of the word grace. Don't be afraid of the word hesed. 
Your very soul depends on it. And David's actions were, were not based on Mephibosheth's of merit. Instead, they were rooted in, in a promise, in a covenant, and a relationship. And David's own character of kindness. But this story is, is not just a historical account, as we mentioned, of the king's benevolence in, in history. It's a shadow, a, a foreshadowing of a, of a greater king and a greater and a grander display of grace. And just as Mephibosheth was brought from Lodabar, a place of no pasture, a barren land, to dine at the king's table, so too we, crippled by our sins and dwelling in spiritual desolation, are invited by King Jesus to partake in his banquet daily. We're given a place in his kingdom, not because of our worthiness, but because of his great love and the covenant that he sealed with his own blood. Take a moment, take a moment and delight in God's immense grace towards us. Just as David sought out Mephibosheth to show him kindness, God has sought us out, reaching into our own brokenness and offering us peace, hope, joy, eternal life, let your hearts be filled with gratitude. And may our lives be a, a testimony to the same kind of hesed love, reflecting the heart of our, our King to a world that is in desperate need of His grace. Let's go to Lodabar with the gospel of grace. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for Hesed. Thank you, Lord, for loyal love, steadfast love, unmerited favor, Thank you, Lord, for bringing grace. Thank you, Lord, you didn't just toss us some crutches. You brought us, Lord. Because we were lame. In every sense of that word, we were lame. Lord, I... Uh, there just aren't words. Help our hearts to just marvel that you would call us children of God, that you would transport us from Lodabar to the king's palace. And God, we, we know that if David 
was faithful to his covenant, and that was a human covenant. Oh, how much more will you be faithful to keep the covenant that you cut with your own blood? That is a guarantee like no other. A covenant signed with your blood. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We glory. We marvel in your grace. Help us, Lord, to now reflect that Hesed love to those around us. Because why wouldn't we? If, if this grace has truly penetrated our hearts, that's what will happen. We just won't be able to help it. It'll happen. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for the privilege of how your word ministers to us. Be glorified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Amen.